All right, so we're at the end of August, which means that school has started. And so I know there's, I see a couple students who are in here. Uh, a lot of the students are off in, in classes throughout the rest of the building. But if you're in here, students, the good news is just relax, you're fine. It's the parents who are in trouble right now. Because what we're going to do in honor of school starting, we're going to start today off with a little pop quiz. All right, so if you're a student, you can just sit back and relax. If you're a teacher, you can decide whether you want to participate because you had a lot of school this week too. But we just figured, you know, what better way to start church service than to have a pop quiz? Um, and we're, we're looking at this idea of famous last words. So here's how the quiz is going to work. It's going to be really easy. All right, we're, I'm going to have them put a, a famous last words. These are last recorded words of some, some famous people that you should know of. Uh, and then you're going to guess what they are. If you're joining us online, you can just like guess by typing a comment in. If you're in the room, this is like participation is required. Like you can't just like stare at me. Like I'm, you need to make some guesses. Are you guys ready for this? All right. So here we go. So the first quote that we're going we're gonna to look at is this one. I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. All right, so a couple clues in there. Anything thinking about context of the quote, right? So clearly this person made some work that wasn't up to par, not a good artist or a good worker, right? Again, a reminder, these are famous last words. That means these people are dead. So don't guess anybody living. But any guesses on who might have said this, that their work offended God and mankind? Einstein, that's a good guess. Any other guesses? Shakespeare, all right? We're on, we're on the right Right track, ooh, Michelangelo, good guess. The real answer, Leonardo da Vinci. Specifically, he was talking about how the Mona Lisa was not good enough. Right? Kind of interesting, right? Because I can't draw anything like he did. All right, next one, let's go. Uh, maybe this one will be a little bit easier for you. I only regret that I have but one life to live for my country. Anybody know? American history. Nathan Hale. All right. Somebody was paying attention in class at some point. Good job. All right. The next quote. One last drink, please. Famous last words. Anybody who knows who on his deathbed asked for one last drink? There's lots of... You know, all right. And I guess well, here I'll, I'll, we'll tell you who it is. Jack Daniels. Kind of fit. Interesting, all right? Okay, let's do a couple more, a couple more. This one maybe you guys will get. Are you guys ready? Let's roll. Anybody? I, I hear people murmuring. You know who it is. Does anybody remember his name? Todd Beamer. Yes. All right, so fame, those were his last recorded words as him and some of the other passengers uh, got up to try to, to stop the hijackers on 9-11. Okay, so last one. Here it is. Why not? After all, it belongs to him. Give you a little bit more context for this one. This was the response of someone who on their deathbed just heard the words, may God have mercy on your soul. And his response was, why not? After all, it belongs to him. Any guesses? Ooh. Charlie Chaplin. Charlie Chaplin, half of you in the room are sitting there being like, I have no clue who that is. The other half of you in the room are being like, he spoke? 
Right? But it's interesting, right? These famous last words. And, and so I want to ask you the question as we think about this. What are, have you ever thought about what are your last words going to be? Right? What, what are they going to be? I know for some of you, you're probably worried that maybe your kids or somebody, their last words are going to be like, watch this, right? which you never want. Right? But, but in, in an honest sense, like what, what do you want your last words? What are, if you have the opportunity to give one last bit of information or share something with the people you care about, what is it that you are going to tell them? What is it that's so important that you want to make sure that they know? What we're looking at today as we look at 2 Timothy is, is in a very real sense, these are Paul's last words. These are Paul's parting messages. Paul, who wrote so many of the letters that make up the New Testament. Paul, who, as we read through the book of Acts, traveled and started all these churches, had such a huge impact on the spread of the gospel throughout the known world. Paul, who said so much, is given kind of this opportunity to say his last words. And specifically to this recipient of Timothy. Timothy, who is his, his dear friend, almost like a son to him, this younger guy who had come along with him on many of the, the missionary journeys, had served alongside of him in the churches. As we talked about last week with 1 Timothy, Paul sent that letter of 1 Timothy with Timothy to the church in Ephesus to try to, to handle some issues that were happening in the church, to care for the people there. Paul, Paul cared for this guy, and as he's writing to him, these are, these are his last words. It's his opportunity to encourage him one last time, to share with him some important things that he needs to be reminded of. And so Paul sends this letter to Ephesus where Timothy is. And it's really kind of interesting because the church in Ephesus is, is, had all sorts of issues, just like every church throughout history has had. But Ephesus, we get to see this long arc of their history. Because all the way back when we look in Acts chapter 18, when Paul first went there, Paul helped start this church in Ephesus. But he only was there a short time and he leaves. And he leaves the church in Ephesus in the care of, of Priscilla and Aquila, Paul's friends who served alongside him. And then they, they cared for the church. And in Ephesus, the first time that we see this guy, Apollo, show up. And Apollos is there and Priscilla and Aquila train him. Then Paul goes out and continues um, to preach and teach throughout the churches. But then Paul comes back and ends up actually spending about two years with the church in Ephesus. And he spends all that time with them, uh, teaching them, caring for them, building relationships with them, and serving them. And then he leaves, and on his way back to Jerusalem, he stops by and says farewell to the elders in Ephesus. And then he goes and gets arrested and heads off to Rome. Then he gets word of the issues going on in Ephesus, so he writes 1 Timothy and sends Timothy to care for the church. And then most likely Paul was released from prison, goes back to Ephesus, and in Ephesus gets rearrested and sent back to Rome. And now during this second stint in prison in Rome, as you read in the end of 2 Timothy in chapter 4, you realize that, that things aren't going well. And Paul's pretty sure that this is the end. And so he writes this last letter to Timothy to encourage him, but then also to beg him, like, hurry home. Like, hurry, not home, hurry to Rome, to jail, to come see me. Hey, I, I want you to be here. Like, hurry. Because the reality is that the writing of this letter, most likely within the year, is when Paul is executed. And so we have this record of Paul's final message. This last thing that he wanted to make sure that Paul, Paul wanted to make sure that Timothy knew before Paul was gone 
these final reminders, this final encouragement. And so as we look at this, it, I, I think for this letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy, really boils down to these four kind of important reminders and encouragement that Paul wrote to Timothy, but also that there are for us. These, these things to be reminded of and to be encouraged in as we pursue Christ in our daily life. So we're going to look at this as, as, a, as a letter to us. Paul's last words to us, his encouragement to us, as we chase after Jesus, we seek to grow in our relationship with him. What are the four things that we need to remember? And so the first encouragement that, that Paul gives Timothy is this. Fan your faith into a flame. I love this imagery because this idea of, of having to fan our faith into a flame, because who loves to sit around a campfire when the flames are around? It's just that like smoldering coal and it's just smoke coming up. Doesn't that sound great? You just gather around a smoking fire. No. No, because when that happens, when the fire gets to that point, what do we do? Right? We add some extra fuel to the fire and then we blow on it. Like, it I, I still haven't learned my lesson. I still like, get down my hands and knees and stick my head in there and blow and then like almost singe my face, right? And like, I should learn from Paul and just fan it into flames, but I still just blow on it, but, right? But we add fuel and oxygen to the fire because we want to get that fire going again. We want a nice raging fire so that we can sit back and we can enjoy and be warmed by the heat of it and watch the flames. That, that's what we want to have, and that's, that's what Paul is encouraging Timothy, to, to take this faith that he has, this, this spark of faith, and fan it into a flame. Look at uh, 2 Timothy 1, verses 6, 6 through 9. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the Spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, His prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel. By the power of God, He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of His own purpose and grace. Right, this reminder that, that we have this faith right, that's not of our own. It's not in our own ability. Right? Timothy is confronted once again with the fact that on his own, he falls short, he doesn't measure up, he is lacking. But God has saved him and us and called us to a holy life, not because of what we've done, but because of God, and because of what Jesus accomplished for us. And so that, that, that faith that we have as followers of Jesus, that we've put our, our faith in him saying, well, I, I'm, I know that it's not on my own accord that I have any hope. It's all because of what Jesus did for me. It's the truth of the gospel. That's the starting point that we have to begin with. The truth of the gospel, that we are saved by faith, not by works. But Paul's call to Timothy is take that faith and don't just be satisfied with that faith. <clears throat> but fan it into a flame. He's calling us, he's calling Timothy to, to, the, to something more. It's this life of discipleship that, that when we surrender our life to Jesus, when we trust what Jesus has done, we are called to a life of discipleship. That the rest of our life, the, the call is that, that Jesus is Lord. That we surrender our will to Him. That our answer to every question is, I want to do what God has called me to do. His way, not my way. 
A life of discipleship is a life of surrender to Jesus. That's what we're called to. We're called to be committed to something bigger than ourselves. A life of sacrifice, willing to be used by God. And so the first step, the first reminder, the first encouragement is don't be satisfied with that. We are called to something more. And so we're to fan our faith into flame. But Paul doesn't just stop there, right? Because it's not just about having this, this faith in what God has done for us, not put it, just simply putting our trust in Him, that we're called to a life that's more. And so the second thing that Paul reminds and encourages is that we are to present yourself approved. Present yourself approved. This call on our life, this thing that we are committed to, that we're sacrificing for, this, this life of obedience to Jesus. 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. This idea of presenting yourself to approve that you don't have to be ashamed. Paul uses kind of three analogies. He talks about an athlete. He talks about a soldier and a farmer about people who, who serve and, and with this idea of, of not having to be ashamed of your work. It's called to live out what you're, what you're meant to be. Right? Think about it in, in the, the idea of work. Right? This idea of being called to something more, to, to doing our best, to serving with all that we have, to present ourselves approved so that we don't have to be ashamed of what we've done. Right, at work to do our absolute best to continue to learn and train so that, that the, project we, the projects we lead are accomplished and do well, that the, the, the buildings we design don't collapse on themselves, right? that the students we teach learn and are equipped to do better, that the, the patients we care for get better and heal. In whatever field that we work, that we're working to our best. Right? Like the farmer who works hard to have a good crop at the end of the year. That at the end of the day, there's nothing to be ashamed of. Or I love the imagery of an athlete, right? That, that football is starting up. I love watching football and, and athletes train throughout, right? They're, they're supposed to, during the off-season, train. They're supposed to, to, to work out, to exercise, to study, to prepare, to work on their techniques so that when the season starts, they can be their best. And so now as the, the football season is starting, if you were to watch uh, an athlete and watch them just go out and get completely embarrassed because they're out of shape or they don't know the plays, there's a lot to be ashamed of, right? And yet when you think of an athlete who has spent the whole offseason working out, waking up early, disciplining themselves, being conscious of what they eat and how they train, studying, working on technique and form, that, that they come out and they do their absolute best. And win or lose, they can walk away with their head held high saying, I did my best. That same imagery is what Paul is challenging Timothy to, is calling us to. That we work out our faith with diligence, doing our absolute best so that we won't we don't have to be ashamed. You see, image in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, I, I love Paul's uh, analogy there, but he, he calls them and he says, everybody runs in a race, run in such a way to win. And he disciplines his body, he makes it his slave 
to the end, he, he can be, be held uh, accountable. But that's, that's the imagery that Paul uses that we work out our faith. That we prove ourselves to be a good worker. That we present ourselves well. We're also reminded that in James chapter 2, 14 through 19, James talks about this idea that faith without works is dead. But he's confronting this false idea that, there, that people are saying, well, well I, I'm just going to work really hard. I'm going to do my best because, because as, I, as I do everything that I'm supposed to, as I live a great life, people are going to take notice of it. And man, I'm just going to build up this whole resume of great things that I've done. So someday I'm going to stand before God and I'm going to say, look at what I've done. And God's going to be like, wow, get in here. You have earned it. But the reality is that, that we are saved by faith, not by works lest any man should boast. And yet James reminds us that, that we demonstrate our faith by our works. Right? The, the things, that, the, this faith that we've put our, our, staked our life in, that Jesus is who he says he is, that he has rescued me and saved me, and I want to give my life to him. Everything I do, I want to do for the glory of God. And so I want to show people by the way I live. I'm going to surrender to Jesus in every aspect of my life. And I'm going to present myself an approved worker. And we have to be careful because when we, we can get caught in this idea of being an approved workman. And we can get caught in this trap of, of this idea that someday I can reach perfection. Right? That I'm going, to, I'm going to get it all together. I'm going to have my act together. And I'm going to learn everything well. And I'm going to, I'm going to be able to just, I'm going to live right. I'm going to get everything under control. I'm going to reach this perfection that I can just plateau and coast until I see Jesus. And yet the reality of it is that until we meet Jesus, we will continue to battle. Until we meet Jesus, we will continue to wrestle with doubt. We will continue to deal with fear. We will continue to confront our own failure. We will continue to deal with our own humanity. That we are sinners, saved by grace. And so Paul continues on. And not only do we fan our faith into flames and, and seek to present ourselves approved workmen, but in chapter 3 he, he encourages and reminds Timothy to continue. And he reminds us that we are to continue to grow in our faith. We need to continue to grow in our faith. We can't just be satisfied with, I've, I've done enough, and I can coast. Or we can't be satisfied with, well, well, Jesus saved me, so who cares? I can do whatever I want until he comes because he, he'll save me. He'll forgive me. We're called to continue to grow. And growing is so important as we take the next step. Each day, each and every day as we follow Jesus, we take another step of obedience as we learn to grow and to obey and grow in our faith. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. 
Continue in what you know. Continue to grow. Continue to stand firm in God's Word. Because in God's Word, it's in God's Word that that we are able to, to be made wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on and says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, before we continue on with this idea of continuing in our faith, there's this big question that we have to wrestle with, because continuing to grow in our faith, we're told that, that the Bible is the source of truth. The Bible is the standard by which we grow. This is what God has given us to grow and learn and pursue Him. And so we have to ask the question, and many of you have asked this before, maybe you're currently wrestling with it. How do we know that God's Word is true? If this is the source of truth that I'm supposed to base my life on, how do I know that it's trustworthy? How do I know that this is God's Word, right? Because there's a big question that we we say that the Bible, as we know, is written over a couple thousand years by a a whole slew of human authors in a couple different languages, in areas all over (laughs) Europe and Asia. How do I know that this is trustworthy and true? How do I know that this is God's Word and that by it I I can stake my life on it? Well, before we answer the question, we're not going to, that's a long question to answer in one little sermon, but, but let me just say this. If you're wrestling with that question, God can handle it. If you're wrestling with doubt, if you're wrestling with fear, if, you, if you're unsure of things, man, take those questions to God. Ask away wrestle with it. I think too often we buy into this lie that, that unless our faith is like sol- rock solid, no doubt, then, then I don't belong here. Let me tell you that the church is made up of people who have all sorts of questions, who are wrestling with God's Word and whether it, it's, it's true, who are wrestling with whether, the, the, how do I understand this? How do, what does this mean for me? How do I believe all of these, these, these crazy claims that the Bible says? What do I do with that? God can handle it. I, I, even think about one of, the, one of the disciples. He goes down in history with the nickname Doubting Thomas. Right, what, what did God do? What did Jesus do when, when Thomas was like, I don't believe it. I know Jesus said he was going to raise from the dead. I know that all of you have told me that, but he's like, not going to believe it until I get proof. I'm not going to believe it. How did Jesus handle it? Jesus come face to face with him. It wasn't like, Thomas, get out of here. I told you this was going to happen. You didn't believe me. Thomas, done. You failed. No. Jesus' response to Thomas was, come, put your hand in my side. Touch the holes. See for yourself. And so as we have doubts, as we have questions, man, don't, don't run from God. Ask him. He can handle it. Take your questions to him. Maybe, maybe you're thinking about, man, maybe I'll try a small group. Man, this is a great first question to join a small group. It's like, hey, I'm new here. How do I know this is real? Right, your groups are going to be scared now. All the leaders are mad at me. You know, get people to join. But no, but this is, that's why we, we got it. Because how are we supposed to just know? 
These are the questions that we wrestle with. Faith isn't this thing that I, I believe once and I'll never doubt ever again. It's, it's this constant learning to obey, a constant learning to trust that God's Word is true. And there's a lot of great, I mean, there's a lot of great historical evidence that, that, that shows up. The Bible is actually, as far as literature goes, is, there's more evidence that this is accurate to the, original, to the original writing than any other book in history. There's great, great examples, and, and I would encourage you to, to take that question. If you're wrestling with that question, take that question. You can take it to your small group, to your life group. You can go online. There's some great sources like Got Questions where you can wrestle with that question. There's a lot of, of answers to those questions as you wrestle with it. Or maybe you just want to text the connect line like, hey, I've got questions. I'd like to talk to somebody. Because God has given us his word. It is, we see here in 2 Timothy that it's God-breathed. Even though these human authors wrote it, that we believe that God inspired his word to be written, that he has, he has guided and protected it for us. And so we believe it to be true. And if you're wrestling with that, wrestle away. Continue to ask the questions. And if you're one of those people who's like, well, I don't know if I'm sure this is right or this is for me. Man, keep coming. We are glad, as a church, we're, we're not all here because we have it all together and we know everything. We are people who are convinced that God's word is true. We are people who are convinced that we are sinners who have been saved by God who loves us and has rescued us. And we're growing together in faith to trust our Creator. So I know that didn't answer the questions, how do we know it's true? But it's a question worth asking. I want to encourage you to, to wrestle with it. And even if afterwards you want to come find me, we can talk more. But the basis of this, of what Tim, Paul is writing, Timothy, is, is that the Bible is our source of truth. It's our foundation. So as we continue to grow in our faith, it, it's, it's grounded in God's Word. And that the Bible, which is God-breathed, is profitable for a lot of things. And he, he lists four things. The first one is teaching. The Bible's profitable for teaching. It's, it's, I, growing up, one of the, the little catchphrase that we used to use, the Bible, B-I-B-L-E, stands for basic instructions before leaving earth. That's the idea that the Bible is God's word to us. It's God the Creator's instruction for us, His creation of what it means for us to live of how we're to live, what it means for our life. Right? When something breaks, it's helpful to look at the instruction manual. And, and most of the times, if you've like, you got a broken toaster and you need to look at the instructions, it's helpful to look at the instruction manual for the toaster, not the fridge. Right? So this is God's instruction for us. How do we live? And so as followers of Jesus, we want to continue to learn. So we, we read on our own. We gather at church to, to be taught from God's Word. We gather in life groups to, to read God's Word together that we can learn. But the Bible is also useful for rebuking, which we often want to skip over. Right? It's disapproval. It's pointing out where we don't measure up. The Bible shows us where, where, we're, where we're off course. And then to, to reemphasize it, he goes on to say that the Bible is for correcting Right, so not only do we get called out and where we're wrong, but then it's correction of how to get back on course. Bring us back into alignment. The Bible is meant to be a mirror that reflects us in the image of Christ. How do we measure up? When I look at God's Word, 
Do I reflect Jesus? Because that's what I'm called to be. I was made in the image of God. How am I doing at reflecting Jesus? The Bible points that out to me. But too often we want to use the Bible as a telescope to really look at it. It's like, oh, those people aren't doing good. They're not measuring up. Look at how the rest of the world do. And the Bible's meant to be a mirror that shows us how we measure up with Christ and shows us the areas of our life that are out of alignment that need to be corrected and put back in place. And the Bible's for training. The Bible is useful for training us the next steps of following Jesus. What is my next step of obedience? What is, as I see the areas of my life that are out of line, how do I continue to grow in my faith, to be diligent, to study God's Word, to, to learn more and more and to follow Jesus that my life reflects God? And the, and the big question of why, why all of that? So that our lives are perfect and that people look at us and be like, Wow! Man, I, I want that person to be my neighbor. I want that person to be my friend. I want that person to be my employee. I, man, those people are so great. No. The why is simply this. We are taught, rebuked, corrected, and trained so that we are equipped for good works. For every good work. That, that God uses us for His glory. He's placed each of us in our own neighborhoods, our own workplaces, our own communities, so that we can reflect Jesus in those places, that we can point people to the hope of the gospel of what Jesus has done in our lives, that we can serve, that we can love, that we can care for people, that we are equipped for good works. And finally, as Paul wraps up this letter, his final encouragement to Timothy is simply this, finish well finish well. Paul's writing this letter from a Roman prison. As he writes in chapter 4, all the people who were supposed to speak on his behalf at the trial failed to show up. The trial's not going well. He's convinced that, that the end is near. In fact, his encouragement to Timothy is like, hey, he, he sends him these encouragements. He's like, but then hurry here. Bring my coat. Bring my, my parchments, the stuff that got left in Ephesus when I got arrested. Try to bring them here and hurry because I long to see, I want you here. But he knew he didn't have long. He writes in, in chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also all who have longed for his appearing. Paul knows his time is up, and he's able to sit there as he's reflecting in prison. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've finished well. And his encouragement, like he wrote in a lot of his letters, was, imitate me as I follow Jesus. He set himself up as an example, not as the perfect standard, but as a person who was chasing after Jesus and said, imitate me. And now his last instruction to Timothy is this, I've finished well. And there's a reward in store for me, not because of all I've done, but because of God, the righteous judge, who has promised it to me and to all who have believed. I think it, it, it reminds me of, of Paul the last time he was in jail when he wrote to the Philippian church. And in chapter 1 is where he wrote, he's like, it's for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. And he wrestled with this whole idea of like, man, if God so wills, I would love to stay here longer. I'd love to serve you. I'd love to be with you because God has called me to this. I want to be used for his glory. But, 
man, I cannot wait to go see Jesus. To die is gain. Because he knew what he was meant to do. He lived for God's glory and he was ready. And I was looking at all these last final quotes of people, famous people. I, I came across one that, that got me down one of those rabbit holes. I just read more and more about this person. And it's a person I knew of, but it was just so exciting to read more about it. Adoniram Judson, who was one of the first American missionaries to go overseas and went initially to India, but then spent the majority of his life in Burma. And as he served the church in Burma, he spent his life, he spent a number of years actually in prison. Um, but as he spent his time there, he started a church, um, in fact, outside of the U.S., one of the largest populations of, of Christians and Baptists in Burma. And they trace their roots back to Adoniram Judson. And in the Burmese English Dictionary, still the standard dictionary for translation between English and Burmese, is the one that was written by Adoniram Judson, who gave his life to the people of Burma. A number of his kids died in Burma of diseases. And he translated a huge chunk of the Bible. And he cared for those people. But, but when, as he was on his deathbed, they, they actually sent him out to sea with the hopes that he might recover. And he died in the Bay of Bengal and was buried at sea. But as he was getting ready to leave on the ship, he was talking with his wife. And he said this, It is not because I shrink from death that I wish to live. Neither is it because the ties that bind me here, though some of them are very sweet, bear any comparison with the drawings I at times feel towards heaven. But a few years would not be missed from my eternity of bliss, and I can well afford to spare them, both for your sake and for the sake of the poor Burmans. I am not tired of my work, neither am I tired of the world, yet when Christ calls me home, listen to what he says, I shall go with the gladness of a boy bounding away from school. Think of that. I mean, some of you teachers or parents saw that this week as, as little boys were released from school for the day and the way they left. So excited of freedom, right? And, and that's the image that, that Adoniram Judson says, man, when, when God calls me home, I'm going to be running with joy. But he was so willing to stay longer, to continue his work. He continued on and said, death will never take me by surprise. Do not be afraid of that. I feel so strong in Christ. He has not led me so tenderly thus far to forsake me at the very gate of heaven. No, no, I am willing to live a few years longer if it should be so ordered. And if otherwise, I am willing and glad to die now. I leave myself entirely in the hands of God to be disposed of according to His holy will. Adoniram Judson, another Example for us of someone who finished well. He understood the call that God had on his life. He surrendered his life to Jesus and was obedient each and every step of the way. And God may not be calling us to travel around the world or, or to, to give our lives to some crazy cause. He may be calling you to follow him here. The call God has on your life may be that you work hard for the company right here in Dubuque and spend your life caring for the people around you, loving your family well, being a great neighbor, serving the community around you. Oftentimes we want to dream these big, exciting things, but God is calling us to simple obedience. How do you live out your life? 
How do you fan your faith into a flame that you can prove yourself a, a good worker and continue to grow in your faith until that time when you finish well and you can stand before Jesus and like Adam Judson say, bound blissfully like a boy free from school. Let's pray as we wrap up our time. Father, thank you so much for the hope that we have in you. That it's not about us, it's not about what we've accomplished, what we've done, or, or how good we are. But it's all about you and what you have done for us. God, may we just understand that more. May we, may we be able to take that next step that you are calling us to. Maybe it's, it's simply fanning the faith into flame. Maybe it's, it's learning to trust and, and surrender to you. Maybe it's that we continue to, to work to be obedient to what you've called us to do, to grow in our faith, to study your word, to obey your word. But God, help each and every one of us grow in our relationship with you as we pursue you, that one day we may finish well and stand before you with gladness as you call us home. Jesus, we ask this in your wonderful holy name. Amen.